Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 8, looking at verses 23 to 27 this morning. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. If you were with us last week, you heard a sermon from Matthew 8, verse 28 to 9, 1 from Pastor Michael. We had, and he, he shared with you, we kind of skipped and are coming back uh, because of an adjustment we made with the Grace Family Summit. So this morning will be in verses 23 to 27. You recall in our study of Matthew that chapter 8 is following the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And at the end of that teaching in which Jesus sat down on the mountainside and taught the disciples, those who were followers, not just his 12 disciples, but those who were just following him in a general way at that time. At the end of that teaching, if you look in in 7 verse 28, we read that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So following this astonishing teaching that left the, the people amazed, that left them with a, a very clear sense of the authority by which he taught, we come into Matthew chapter 8 and 9 where we see and hear of the miracles of Jesus in which he performs over healing and the spiritual realm. So the first sermon we looked at, eight, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, we considered three different healings where Jesus displays his authority, his power over the physical realm, his ability to heal the body. Then in eight twenty-eight to 34, we saw last week, Mike uh, preached on Jesus' power over the spiritual realm, his ability, his authority to cast out demons. But today what we look at is Jesus' power over nature, that he is the sovereign Lord of all creation. He reigns over creation. So the picture that Matthew is giving us in his gospel and the way he's arranged his gospel, the, the point and the focus of his gospel is that Christ not only teaches with authority, but he has all authority. He is truly to be worshiped. And so as we read Matthew 8, we should be struck with this idea and this understanding, somewhat of an, an astonishment, the same as the people had, being astonished at the power and the might and the authority, the rule of our great God. I was reminded of Psalm 66, 1 through 4. When we study this, we read this, I think we should declare with the psalmist when he says, shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. So when we get to the end of Matthew 8, my prayer is that that would be our response, that we would step back and say, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power. Let's pray together before we study the word this morning. Father, we, we bow and we confess that you are awesome in your deeds. The things that you do are absolutely amazing. And God, we thank you for your word that you have preserved testimony of your working throughout history, that we could come in this moment and we could study your glorious deeds and your great power. And I pray that you would work in our lives through your word this morning, that we would live lives of praise, that we would sing joyfully of your greatness. 
and the greatness of your deeds. We pray in Christ. Amen. Now, if you just kind of think back where we've been in Matthew 7 and 8, you'll remember that there was a great crowd that came around Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And when he finished teaching, he goes through the town. It says in chapter 8, verse 1, that the great crowds followed him. So the crowd follows Jesus. You have this picture of Jesus navigating the countryside with this great crowd going wherever he goes. And he's teaching. He's healing them. He's casting out demons so that at the end, he, it says that he had, uh, verse 17 of chapter 8, that he, or 16 and 17, he was casting out spirits of the word and healing all who were sick. They were following him. And, and it was in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we've talked about that, and we come into this dialogue in, in chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, with these two would-be disciples that come to Jesus, and they see all that he's doing. And when Jesus says, okay, it's time for us to go across the lake, we're going to go across and, and to the other side, and these two would-be disciples say, oh, oh, well, we want to go with you, one of whom says, I'll follow you anywhere you go. If you go across the lake, I'll follow you there, somewhere else. And, and Jesus gives him a warning of the cost of discipleship. The, the second disciple at that point says, well, let, I'll follow you, but let me take care of this business first. And again, he warns the disciple, the would-be disciple, of the cost of following him. We come now to verse 23 of chapter 8. He's had this dialogue with these two men. He's ready to go. The boat has been prepared. It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? And we come to this text. This is a, a narrative text, and some people, many scholars actually throughout history come to this text, and they look, and they look at verse 23, and when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him, and and they spiritualize the text and say, well, this is a, a text about discipleship and the, how much it, it could cost you and how difficult discipleship could be. I don't, I don't say that that's just absolutely not in the text, but I don't find it convincing that that's the primary point of the text. We want to look, and what is the primary point of the text? We have to be careful not to over-spiritualize every event in the Gospels at the sake of what is truly happening, the, the reality of what's going on in the, in the encounters and what Jesus and what God is teaching us through these moments. We read there in verse 24 that uh, there arose a great storm of the sea. The, the Greek there, is, or, and I, I usually don't share the Greek with you, but this morning I'm going to is I think you can figure out the meaning of these words. The Greek is seismos megas, right? You've probably heard those words. So seismos is, you might, you might have heard of a, a seismograph, right? A seismograph measures what? How violent an earthquake is, right? how much it shakes, how, how, how strong is it. So seismos is the Greek word that indicates a shaking, an, an earthquake, a, a tempest. And so that's where we get that word. Then megas is the, what, what you would understand as mega, right? We're familiar with that. We understand the word mega. It's great, it's mighty, it's violent. 
And so this storm that arose was no small rain cloud. It's not as though the disciples went, oh, look, it's going to rain. This was a significant moment, a significant event. It wasn't a standard storm. The, the disciples were certainly no strangers to the sea. It wasn't as though this was the first time they'd ever gotten to the boat and some wind picked up and it got stormy and, and it was kind of rough sea. This was a significant, significant storm. A, a seismos megas, a great shaking. It says the, the boat was being swamped there in verse 24. The boat was being swamped by the waves, and, and you had this idea of the boat going up and down, and when it's down in between the waves, these great waves around it, and they're crashing in, and the water perhaps is just crashing into the boat, and it's a disturbing moment for the disciples, these men who were on the sea a lot. But then we have this statement about Jesus, but he was asleep. He was asleep. The, the disciples are being tossed about, and our Lord is sleeping. Now, I think there's two things we just want to take note of here. The, the first thing we take note of is we see Jesus' humanity, that he indeed has physical weariness. He's tired. He needed rest. And we see that where he takes a moment and he rests. When, when Christ takes on flesh, he takes on some of the physical limitations and difficulties of man. That's the importance. When we read Hebrews 2.17, where it says that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect, he was made like us, yet he was without sin. But he was made like us that he might be a great high priest that was tempted as we are in every way, but yet he was without sin. So here we see first the humanity of Christ, just a glimpse of that as he's sleeping. But the second... We see here, and we should know, we shouldn't miss the peace in which Jesus lived. Jesus lived and, and functioned in this absolute perfect peace. So the Lord of creation had no fear over creation's power. He was not rattled. He created all that there is. So in that moment, he was not worried about what creation might do. He knew the purpose of the Lord. He knew the purpose of the Father. He knew that the sovereign king over all creation, that his purposes would stand. And in the terminology of, of the Gospel of John, his hour had not yet come. There was nothing to fret, nothing to worry about, because he rested in the complete, perfect peace of knowing God the Father's will, plan, and timing. Now, what that means for us is we need to be reminded that peace is upon our lives when we trust God's will, plan, and timing. There's a certain amount of peace that we live in when we have an absolute trust in him and the reminder and the constant realization that our days are in his hands. We live at rest knowing that our days are in his hands. Psalm 139 verse 16 reminds us of that. It says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was not one of them. Our days are in his hands. Job says the same thing as he's dialoguing with his friends and talking about the circumstance that he was going through. Job says, man's days are determined. The numbers of his months are with you, O Lord. You have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. See, we rest. We have the certainty and the assurance that we live under the rule and the care and the love and the control of a sovereign king. 
This is what led George Whitfield to, to write in a letter regarding when he was, you, you might remember if you were here the night that we did the George Whitfield night and, and preached the sermon and sang his hymns that he had written. You might remember we shared a little about the, just the peril and the danger that he experienced preaching as people got very um, opposed to his preaching. There were times where he endured beatings. There were times where uh, people would play instruments during his sermons. They would throw things at him. There were a couple attempts on his life, all because he was preaching the gospel and calling people to be born again, right? And so people asked about this and said, why should you not step back? Should you not relent? Should you not just let up a little bit for your own safety? Well, Whitfield writes in a letter, in the midst of this letter, writing regarding the danger and peril that he faced by preaching, he says, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. And so Whitfield continued about preaching, continued about teaching. Why? Because he knew that he rested in the hands of God Almighty. There was nothing to fear so he could go about his work. Christ, asleep in the boat, knew his day, his hour had not yet come. The disciples wake him, verse 25 there. The disciples wake him. What do they say? They come to him. They appeal to him. They wake him. Save us, Lord. We're perishing. Save us, Lord. We're, we're perishing. They knew and they had seen enough about Christ to know that he could save them. I don't know that looking at their response, they really knew how he was going to do that. I don't think they really were anticipating that he's going to rebuke all of creation in that moment, right? But they knew that he was the one who could and would save them. And so they make an appeal to him. It's an appeal of faith, albeit, albeit it's a little faith that Jesus would later stay. He would confront that. But they do make this appeal of faith to him. They, they rightfully call him Lord, Master. They know who he is. And they're appealing for physical salvation from the Lord, that he might save them in their peril. Now, look at what Jesus does in verse 26 and 27. They make the appeal, we're perishing, Lord, would you save us? And he says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, I, it doesn't say this. I wasn't there, but I just had this picture of, you know, Jesus asleep. And I don't know if you've ever been asleep on the couch and one of your kids comes and wakes you and you, you're, you know, it's for something that you're thinking, this was not significant enough for me to get woken up for my Sunday afternoon nap, right? You've all, parents, you've been there, right? And you just kind of lay there and go, did you really need to wake me up? And then you get up and do it, right? Well, I kind of have the same picture here. Jesus is in the boat. He's sleeping and the disciples, save us, Lord, we're perishing, well, the first thing he does, what? He kind of opens his eyes and looks at them and says, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Spurgeon has a, a funny remark. He says, he was writing on this text and he said, he said that uh, Jesus first addressed the disciples because they're the most difficult to deal with. Then he handled creation later. <laughs> you know, I, I thought that was great. I appreciated that. It's probably true. Probably a good, true observation of us. But he first rebukes the, the disciples, talks to them, deals with them for their little faith, right? And then he rebukes the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. This great storm was replaced by a great calm by the rebuke of our great God. Amen. That's the power and the authority 
authority of God. When Christ spoke, creation responded. When I speak, creation never responds. And I would say the same is true of all of you. But when our God speaks to the creation He created, it responds. You're reminded in, in David, David's song of deliverance. He, he writes the song of deliverance. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 22 and then again in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is from 2 Samuel 22. And there, here's what he, he speaks of in there. He says, The channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. See, God rebukes creation. The God we serve is authoritatively speaking and ruling over creation. In, in Psalm 104, verse 7, it was the rebuke, again, of the Lord that caused the waters to recede and come back off of the mountains to flee to their place, the word says. The rebuke of the Lord. And here we have Christ rebuking creation. So we read the Old Testament, we see Yahweh, the great I Am, God rebuking creation, ruling over creation, sovereign over creation. When he speaks in the Old Testament, creation obeys. And now in this boat, as the disciples awake Christ, they wake and they say, Lord, would you save us? We're perishing. What does he do? He rebukes creation. He displays that he indeed is God. The God that the Old Testament proclaims, the God that is exalted and magnified in the Old Testament, Jesus speaks and creation obeys. At the rebuke of his word, creation responds. Psalm 65, 7, we heard earlier, God is the one who by his strength established the mountains, girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that... It says, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of his signs. He stills the roaring of the seas. He rebukes creation. He established the mountains, it says. They are girded with might, but he stills the roaring seas. And here, Christ stills the roaring seas. Christ is God. We're reminded again, Psalm 89, 9. It says, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. John 1 says that Jesus is the word made flesh. And here the word made flesh spoke an authoritative word of rebuke to creation and creation responded to him. Creation was subdued. It submitted to its creator. There is no man that has the power to calm the sea. But God can do so. And God did do so when Christ arose and rebuked all of creation. So what does this teach us? What does this account teach us? I mean, the first thing we want to ask is what does this account, what does this passage teach us about Christ? What does it teach us about God? Let's look at a little Christology here. What does this teach us about Jesus? The, the question in verse 27 is the key to understanding the point of this passage. When, when he leaves us with this concluding, this resounding question, this kind of, it just dangles there as we read along, we get to the end of this account of what's happened, and he says, the men marvel, saying, what sort of man is this 
that even winds and sea obey him. Matthew just leaves that there. Just leaves that there for you to consider. What sort of man is this? What what sort of of man that, that when he speaks, creation responds? See, what this tells us is that the primary point of the account is not that we should follow Jesus through the storms of life. Should we? Absolutely. Can we bring that out of this passage? Sure. But it's not the primary point of the passage. The primary point is not that we need to have stronger faith. Should the disciples have had stronger faith? Yeah. Should we? Sure. But it's not the primary point of the passage. The primary point of the passage is that Jesus Christ is the sort of man who rules over creation. He is the sort of man who is sovereign over all things. He is the Lord of all creation. He rules creation with absolute power and absolute authority. He is the sovereign king of kings. All power belongs to him. So you might sit, and some of you are medical professionals in here, and you, you may go, oh, well, this condition and uh, this person who was healed could have been this. You know, not saying Jesus didn't heal him, but now we know this, and it could have been this. Well, listen, there's no explanation for this mighty storm that is, uh, that is described as a seismos magna, that's this great, shaking, violent, terror-stricken storm. There's no explanation for Jesus getting woken up and looking and rebuking it and it going and being calmed. There is no explanation outside of the fact that he is God and he is God alone. He has dominion over creation. So in verse 27, the disciples say, what sort of man is this? What sort of man is this? Well, John 1.3 says he's the sort of man that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, he's the sort of man who created all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. In Hebrews 1.3, we find out he's the sort of man who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is a mighty, awesome, powerful, holy Sovereign God. He rules above all things. He is far beyond anything we can comprehend. He is far more powerful than anything we can fathom, anything we can wrap our minds around. But yet we also find out he's the sort of God who made salvation available. He's the sort of God that transcendently rules above all things but is imminently involved in our lives, providentially working, pouring out his grace and his mercy on those whom he created. He's the sort of man that we find out in Matthew 9.36 who had compassion on sinners when he looked out upon the city because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. He's the sort of man in Luke 19.10 who came from heaven to seek and to save the lost. He's the sort of man that you may remember from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. He's the sort of man that's described as a son of man whose dominion never ends, whose rule and kingdom is everlasting and never ends, who will come again on a cloud to redeem his people. 
Mark 10, 45. He's the sort of man who gave his life as a ransom for many. What sort of man is this? He's the one who is truly, fully God and truly, fully man. He is holy, 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 eternally existent and all-powerful, abounding in steadfast love, full of mercy and grace, forgiving sinners who trust in him. That's the sort of man he is. Let me give you two final observations that we can take if that's the primary point. We can gain some other gleanings from this account. Two observations we can think about as far as living out our faith in light of the fact that Christ is the sovereign ruler over all things and the Lord of all creation. The first one is this, is that faith in God should rise above fear of circumstances. Our faith in the Lord of creation should rise above any fears that we would have in all of creation. So we look to him, we gaze upon him, and when we gaze upon him, fear flees. You see, fear arises when faith falters. The two are kind of like this. We look upon the Lord, and there's times we look upon the Lord, or we look upon the situation, perhaps, and we, we look upon that like the disciples did. The disciples in this moment, they had a greater fear than they did faith. It wasn't that they had no faith, right? Jesus doesn't say they had no faith. But what we see here is that the fear that they had had captivated them and it was greater than their faith, so they came to him. And when they came and wake, woke him up, he didn't say, you have no faith. What is wrong with you? He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? He says, oh, you of little faith. He doesn't rebuke them for having no faith. He rebukes them for having faith that was lacking. It was little, it was deficient. See, Matthew, four other times in Matthew, Jesus uses the same phrase. He says, you of little faith. He confronts his disciples. He's always confronting his disciples with a lack of faith. He, he doesn't do that in, in those who are unbelievers. But he looks to his disciples in verse, chapter 6, verse 30. Remember, the, this is the passage on do not worry about tomorrow. And, and he, he confronts, he talks about little faith, calling us not to worry about tomorrow. He's saying, increase your faith. Trust the Lord. Don't worry about tomorrow. In Matthew 14, 31, he, he says, he used that same phrase, little faith, when Peter begins to sink when he's walking on the water to Jesus. You remember, again, they're in a boat. The waves are pretty big in that moment. Jesus comes walking across the lake, right? And the disciples, again, they're struck with fear, probably a great moment to fear the Lord when you see him walking on water. And then Peter walks across. Well, then he starts struggling and he starts sinking. And what is Jesus' response? You have little faith. Increase your faith. You have little faith. 16 verse 8. The disciples are concerned about not having enough bread. He, again, why is your faith little? 17 verse 20. The disciples are unable to cast out a demon. Why? It's because of their little faith. You see, faith should be the hallmark of the believer. It should be the hallmark of who we are, that we are people of faith. We, we read in passages such as Galatians 2.16 that we are justified by faith alone, right? It's faith that saves. So we understand that. We, we read later in, in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it's impossible to please God. 
Faith is a characteristic, a hallmark of Jesus' followers. And so Jesus is constantly pulling and confronting and drawing us to have a greater faith in him. Increase your faith in me. Matthew Henry, the commentator, he, he wrote this. He said, Jesus does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. He doesn't rebuke them for waking him up. He rebukes them for allowing fear to be greater than their faith. See, when we walk in faith, it, it pushes out fear. It doesn't mean that fear never assails you. It doesn't mean that you're never attempted to be fearful. It doesn't mean that you never meet a moment in which fear comes upon you and you, you, never, you just never have it. I just never fear anything. What it means is that when we walk in faith, that, that that's our response. That our response, when a situation comes, it's our reflex that we just respond with faith instead of responding by cowering in fear or being racked with fear, immobilized with fear, but we would look to the Lord in faith. So when fears arise, faith decreases. When faith arises, fear decreases. Theologian from Canada, D.A. Carson, says faith chases out fear or fear chases out faith. One of the two are happening. Both may be present, but one will rise to the top. In this moment, the fear of the disciples had risen to the top. And Jesus caused them to have faith. You see, they allowed that circumstance to loom large. And this is a very real question. We think about this and we consider, are there circumstances in our life that we allow to loom so large that we're racked with fear, that we struggle to really trust the Lord, that we're captivated by this circumstance, by this situation of life. Maybe it's a, a situation, a, a, some kind of a physical situation in our lives, a sickness, an illness, an uncertainty physically we have. And we're so gripped by that that we're having a hard time looking and trusting the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's a relationship that you have. Maybe, maybe there's a relationship in your life that is so broken that you're so consumed by that relationship, and you're so fearful of what may happen in that relationship, that it's just pushing faith out the door. Oh, you of little faith, have faith in the Lord. Maybe it's an uncertain future. You don't know what tomorrow holds. It's not looking like it's going to work out the way you want it to work out. What is it that may perhaps be so great in front of you, so captivating before you, that you struggle to trust the God who saved you, the God who reigns over all creation. The second observation from the passage is that we must not forget who we serve. We, we must not forget who we serve. The, the, the disciples come to this moment and they do cry out to the Lord. He, he does far more than they could imagine in this moment, right? And we must not forget that. We must not forget how great and mighty God is. You see, the one who delivered the disciples from the storm is the same one that we gather today to worship. It's the same one that we trust to save us. The same one that when we breathe our last, we're trusting in faith to hold us fast by his grace and his power. The one who calmed the storm is the one who says, I have the power to guard the inheritance that I have for you that is unfading, undefiled, and never perishing. That's the God we serve. That's the God we trust. 
The one that we worship today is the one who delivered the disciples and said that he delivers us from our ills. I want us to just end our time and ask you to flip over to Psalm 107. It's a beautiful psalm in light of this account in Matthew 8. Psalm 107. It's a lengthy psalm. We just want to look at it briefly. I want you to hear it. And I think just in hearing this psalm, then you'll be encouraged and reminded of who we serve, the one who delivers us from our distresses. Psalm 107 begins, and I want you, there's four scenes here, okay? There's four scenes, and every scene there's going to be a phrase that's repeated. I'm not going to tell you what it is, so you have to pay attention, right? So pay attention. I want you to hear what is the, what's the phrase that gets repeated. Starting in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered him from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry, thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons. They had rebelled against the words of God, and they spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works for the, to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord as wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. 
Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of elders. Did you pick up the four repetitive statements in there? Steadfast love. What do they do every time? They cried out to the Lord. There was different circumstances. Some wandered, some sat in darkness, some were foolish, some were in the sea. In every moment, whatever the situation was, they cried out to the Lord. Verse 6, verse 13, verse 19, verse uh, 28. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And what does it say? He delivered them from their distress. They cried out to the Lord, he delivered them. They cried out to the Lord, he delivered them. They cried out to the Lord, he delivered them. They cried out to the Lord, he delivered them. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. How is this steadfast love displayed? By delivering his people. The very last verse says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The God we serve delivers us from our distress. The God we serve rules over creation. He's the Lord of all creation. And he is able, he is able to deliver. And so we look to him, we cry out to him. So today, whoever is wise, whoever is wise, let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let us consider his power. Let us consider his rule and his reign and his sovereignty. And let us consider his steadfast love, his deliverance. There's two responses. You see, many of us are gathered and we gather as believers. And those of us who gather here this morning, we gather as believers who have been saved in our distress, who have cried out to the Lord, help me, help me. I am perishing. I'm dead in my sins. I'm dead in my transgressions. Oh, God, save me. There's nothing I can do. Consider that. Rejoice in that today. We cried out to him, believers. We cried out to him as rebels. We cried out to him as those who were dead. We cried out to him as those who were in bondage. We cried out to them as those who had foolishly spurned him and pursued our own ways. And he delivered us in our distress. So we worship him. We worship him today. The other response is the reality that there are many things going on in life. There's many difficult situations. I know many of them that you're in the midst of sitting here today. I know some of you find yourself in situations you don't want to be reminded of. You hate to wake up in the morning because when you wake up, that's the first thing you think about. And when you lay down, it's the last thing you think about. And that situation is raining and just over you. 
It's raging about you. And in light of that, the appeal and the call is to cry out to the Lord. Every time they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, God delivered them from their distress. We get over to, to Matthew 8, 23 to 27. What happens? The disciples cry out to the Lord, Lord, save us. We are perishing. What does he do? He delivers them in their moment of trouble. So cry out to the Lord. Perhaps that's because today you've realized the reality of your sin, the depth of your sin, and the, the reality of your need for Christ, that you're not going to have eternal life outside of Christ alone. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. Oh, Lord, save me. Save me from my sins. I can't do it. Cry out to him. Or maybe you've gotten entangled in a sin. Maybe there's some type of sin you've backslidden and you're, you've got this sin that's just entangling you and you're sitting there going, it's gripped me. I'm all entangled. I'm embarrassed about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want you to know about it. If you knew, well, cry out to the Lord. Yeah, have you acted foolishly? Sure. Some of you are in a spot where you're embarrassed and you have acted so foolishly. I've spurned the very thing that God's told me not to do. I've done it. Cry out to the Lord. He will save you in your distress. Maybe your marriage is a disaster. Maybe your relationship with a child is a disaster. Maybe just your, your, your integrity is a disaster because you're undermining things. You're, you're being scrupulous and deceitful in the way you're running your business. Repent and cry out to the Lord. You need help in that relationship? Cry out to the Lord. It's beyond you. Cry out to the Lord. If you're shackled in fear, Cry out to the Lord. God, save me. God, help me. God, strengthen me. God, please, please, may our reflex be to cry out to the Lord in faith. May that be our reflex. May it not be the reflex to, to respond in fear, to respond by trembling and shaking, but in the midst of fear, may we look it in the eye and say, my faith in my Savior is greater, not because I'm greater, but because he's greater. He rules over all things, so I'm trusting him in this situation. Let's cry out to him. Let's trust him. We're going to close today with a reminder that this is our Father's world. This is our Father's world. Everything that's going on in our lives is under the rule of God Almighty. He's the creator of all there is. He's the sustainer of all there is. Colossians 1.17 teaches us that. He holds all things together. All things are held together in him. Hebrews 1.3. All things are held together by the power of his word. This is our Father's world. There's nothing in your life that happens outside of the knowledge and the counsel of the Lord. That doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean there's days that we would prefer not go through. But what it does mean is we serve the risen Savior who rules over all things. And this closing hymn is a reminder of that. This is our Father's world. We're singing. I want you to think upon these words. If, if you just want to be quiet and listen to the words, that's okay. Or sing them. Make this your prayer. Reminder, this is my Father's world. I want you to hear verse 3. Verse 3 says this. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that, through, or that though the wrong seems also strong, 
God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we come to you knowing that you are the creator of all there is. You are the holy, reigning, ruling King of Kings. There is no God but you. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord, when you speak, creation responds because you rule over it. And so, God, we look to you today in faith. God, there are many things going on in our lives. Many things that would seek to strike fear in our hearts. The adversary is, is very wily in that. Leading us to live in fear of tomorrow and li live in fear of situations, fear of people, fear of the unknown. Fear of physical challenges, fear of relational brokenness, fear and fear and fear and fear. God, you call us to live by faith in you. So God, we pray today, would you strengthen our faith by your grace. And I pray for brothers and sisters here today who trust you in faith. But God, it's weak. God, would you hold them fast? God, would you strengthen their faith? God, would you direct their gaze to you, not on the surrounding circumstances? Would you remind them that you are the Lord of all creation? God, I pray that our reflex would be to cry out to you. To cry out to you that whatever our days hold, that we would be mindful of the truth and the reality that this is your world. And we serve you. So God, remind us of that. Increase our faith, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.